Thanks, man. Morning. 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 Who's here today? Uh, where, where, what time? When am, when am I? <laughs> where am I? <laughs> oh, we love that extra hour, don't we? <laughs> uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Tim. I, uh, I get to serve here on staff and uh, get to unpack scripture with y'all on Sunday mornings a lot of times and enjoy the privilege of getting to do that. Uh, I want to invite you this morning to turn, if you will, in your Bibles to uh, the book of Nahum, chapter 1. If you're wondering where Nahum is, Nahum's a little over halfway through the Bible. Um, It's after Micah and before Habakkuk, uh, and that's where we will be this morning. So uh, before we get into the text, uh, we're in a uh, a series of teachings, and this the season leading up to Easter traditionally is called Lent, and we're in a series of teachings on the holiness of God. And when we talk about the holiness of God... um, uh, there's a couple parts of that. One, that in, in and of himself, he is trans, God is transcendent, God is unique, God is one of a kind, God is above all. He, he is worthy to be uh, worshipped in and of himself. He is the desire of our hearts. And also when we talk about holiness, he is, he is morally right, he is good. He's on the side of goodness and justice. And, uh, and when, we, when, we, when we get a right glimpse of who God is, uh, we believe there's really there's really kind of two fundamental responses when we see God rightly in His goodness and His power that um, either a person wants to be king of their own life and runs away from Him, or they find in God um, the desire of their hearts and they fall down and and worship Him. That, that to see God rightly, there's no place for apathy in that indifference. That to see God rightly, it just drives out, and that our hope. Our hope for this community is we'd see him right, and we would be drawn towards him uh, in his transcendence, in his goodness. That's the, the, the hope of this series of teachings. This morning, the topic we're going to be talking about uh, is uh, the wrath of God. And now I know you probably got up, you know, it's daylight savings time, you got your cup of coffee, and you're driving here, and you're walking here maybe, and you're thinking, you know, this morning when they teach, I just, I hope it's, oh, I don't know, on anything but the wrath of God. <laughs> that's not, right? I mean, it's like, that's intense, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I hope that in, as we, as we talk about the wrath of God this morning, I, I hope a couple things. Well, I hope we redeem it, is what I really hope. This idea that, it, that if caricatures of what the wrath of God means have built up in our minds, that we get rid of those and that we actually see uh, we see this idea rightly. Um, uh, we see God truly uh, in, in terms of wrath. Uh, because I think, um, I, do, I do some characters build up around this idea, wrath of God. Okay, so just, uh, what, when you hear this phrase, wrath of God, honest, what pops into your head? Just shout some things out. Lightning bolt from the sky, yes. Fire and brimstone. What else? Rebellion. Did I hear something over here? Flood, earthquake. Anything else? Justice. Genocide. Mercy, did you say? We, we, you know, there, I think uh, for, you know, not, uh, I think for some of us, wrath of God, it has... I do think it needs, the idea, it takes on really... Um, Poor connotations, where where it's almost like 
for some of us, maybe we, we remember uh, um, early on in adults, certain adults, maybe parents or grandparents or coaches or other adults in our lives, like losing their temper and just being angry at things, kind of for no reason, just venting their anger and it feeling unsafe and dangerous and kind of for no reason and just kind of out of control. And this, we get this picture of wrath and then we think that's what God's wrath is. Is like that God, you know, he's just he's he just loses his temper, he's out of control, and so but when he's God, so it's like earthquakes and volcanoes and and, and hurricanes and and Seattle loses his basketball team and just like, you know, it's like, the, the, it's kind of just out of control, and and I think that um. And Frank, this idea that God just that God's wrath means he he's out of control and unpredictable and, and just venting. Um, and we reject that. We think, if God's really good, he can't be like that. And I would say, yeah, that is right. If he's like that, that's not true. But what I think we're going to see this morning is that when God communicates who he is through Scripture, he said his wrath, the way he talks about it, he says it's an expression of his goodness. God is good. This is fundamental, biblical, baseline God is good, unquestionably. But his goodness means that he is just. And God's justice, God just doesn't think justly. God acts justly. God opposes injustice and oppression and abuse. And God's justice in action, the biblical word for that is wrath. And it's flowing out of his goodness. And I think that's what we're going to see as we look at scripture this morning. So let's look at Nahum now. We're going to be in Nahum, and we'll just start right at the beginning of the book. We're not going to do the whole book, but um, we'll start at the beginning. So Nahum 1.1. This is what we read. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. So... Just to set the context a bit here, um, Nahum, the, na- the, word, the name Nahum means comforter, which is interesting. Um, and uh, he says this book is about Nineveh. So if we're going to understand what follows, we need to understand the context that Nahum is writing to. What, who, what is going, who is Nineveh? What's going on with Nineveh? So Nahum, this is being written in the mid-600s B.C., so, you know, 2,600 years ago. And uh, he's writing about this, this, uh, this town, Nineveh. What is the capital of Assyria? Nineveh. So, um, Nin, uh, Nineveh, here it is on the map. You see Nineveh there in the top right with the circle of red around it? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is this empire in the ancient Near East in this time. They are the largest player on the scene. They are powerful. They are the largest empire in the world. And Nineveh is the capital. So when you hear Nineveh, think capital of the Assyrians. Is the, Nineveh and Assyria, those we're going to be speaking about those. Nineveh is the capital of Assyrians. And so you've got this Assyrian empire. And then um, you've got uh, Israel over on the Mediterranean Sea. And they're just bit players in the world at this point. Assyria is the power player. Now, Assyria... In their conquest of the ancient Near East, um, uh, so maybe 80 years before Nahum is written, they had come over to Israel and they had wiped out the northern part of the country. In 722 was the year, 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes over, wipes out the north, just takes it right off the map, takes everybody into exile, and then they went back home. 20 years after that, in 702 BC, they came back to finish what they started. So in 702, they come back to take out the southern part of Israel called Judah. Here's a map 
of uh, this. You see the green outline? That's, that's what's left of Israel at the time, called Judah. And Assyria comes back in 702, and they just start taking cities out. They start on the, on the coastal plain there and take one city after another city, and they're headed towards Jerusalem, which is up in the hill country. And they get to this city called Lachish. You see that with the red circle? Lachish. Um, whew, there's a lot of Lachish all at once. Um, uh, Lakish, okay, it's this, this strategic city that controls the routes into the hill country where Jerusalem is. It's got this double wall around it, one of the largest cities in Judah at the time, the southern kingdom. And, uh, and so Assyria comes and they've conquered multiple cities already in the coastal plain. Now they've surrounded Lakish. And they begin this siege of Lakish. And uh, they, uh, they start building a siege ramp. Well, actually, let's show some of these pictures. Here's the picture of Lakish today, what's left of it. Uh, ignore that yellow box. That means nothing. Honestly, that's just the best image I could find. I don't even know. So, um, so there's Lakish today, and there, there were wall, there's a double wall, wall on top, and a wall part way down the hill. And so what Assyria does, they start building a siege ramp up to the wall. Here's the seat, what's left of the siege ramp. And maybe you think, well, when they're building a siege ramp, why don't the, the Lakishites just you know shoot arrows and stuff? Well, who's building the siege ramp? Are they Assyrians building? No, they're using cap. Israelites, they've already captured, making them, the countrymen, build the siege ramp. And there's this even dramatic, the archaeology shows that on the inside of the city wall, the Lakishites, the Israelites, are building a counter siege ramp, trying to get up higher than the siege ramp being built on the outside. This battle between the Assyrians and uh, the people in Lakish ends up being such a big deal that the Assyrians, the king of Assyria, goes back to Nineveh, and he has this huge stone carving made to commemorate this battle. 12 yards long, 5 yards high, put in the palace. We can, you can go see it today. And, uh, and he commemorates. And so here's some pictures. They built the siege ramp. Then they had these big siege towers pushed up the ramp. You can see one of the siege towers in the middle there. And you see how they, these, this is the represented those diagonalized of the ramp. And the archers are going up the siege ramp, attacking the city. This battle breaks out. And the Assyrians break down the wall and get into the city and decimate the place. They take women and children, slaves. They, they take captives. They torture the men. Here's a, this is the same inscription, men being tortured. They actually, one of the things the Assyrians were known for was impaling their victims. Same inscription. You can see this on there. And uh, then they would take these people on poles and they would march them like that to the next city. This is the Assyrian Empire. The last verse of the book of Nahum says, Who has not felt your endless cruelty? Can we see that verse? This is, this is who Nahum is writing about. These people are still on the loose in Nahum's day. You know, when we, uh, we read scripture, we need to not just read it with our heads, but read it with our guts. To think, who were who the people, when, when this was being written, who were, who were the people it was being written to? What is their situation? And uh, most, I would say the vast majority of the recipients of Scripture were people on the underside of history. The vast majority of the people, Assyria, Israel was a bit player on the scene back then. They were... They often, you had often had these huge empires marching through. And the, 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 the power that the, the first recipients of these words, 
the power they had in their lives, they have more in common with, say, Syrian Christians today or Iraqi Christians today in terms of their power than American Christians today. The recipients were on the underside of history. And Nahum is writing to them. And these are the words Nahum says about who God is. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Now, if you, if you were living in what's left of Israel in the mid-600s, if your great-grandfathers, your great-great-great-grandmothers had lived through that destruction, the king of Assyria says that he took, he, he took down 46 walled cities in the nation. If you heard rumors about what the Assyrians were doing to neighboring kingdoms, if you lived with the reality that they could come back whenever they wanted and do whatever they wanted, would God's wrath, that God is a God of justice, that God avenges, opposes evil, would that be bad news? Or would that actually be good news? See, God, when he speaks about his character, he says, my, my, I'm good, I'm good, but that means I'm just. And because I'm just, I oppose evil, I oppose injustice, I oppose oppression. And because, because I oppose it, there comes a time and place where my justice has legs, it has actions. God's wrath is his justice in action. And it's not just opposed, it's not just, hey, you know, you know, you Israelites, you're my favorite, and anybody who's against you, I'm against. It's not that. It's not this kind of playing favorites. God is for the powerless and the vulnerable, those who are being evil is done against. In Exodus uh, 22, we're not going to go there, but you can later this week. Exodus 22, verse 21 and following. God's talking to the Israelites after he's taken them out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, hey, and, he, and he's talking to them about his wrath. And he says, he says, when you get into the promised land, uh, don't forget this. He says, you were foreigners once. And when you get into the promised land, I do not take advantage of foreigners living amongst you. God says, do not take, if, they, if their skin color is different, their culture is different, their religion is different, do not take advantage and oppress them. God goes on, he says, do not take advantage and oppress the widow amongst you. In this day and age, to be a widow um, would be a very vulnerable situation. He says, do not take advantage of them. Do not take advantage of the orphan among you. Some of the most vulnerable in the society. God says, if you, if you oppress these, these people, the vulnerable, the powerless, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan, he says, I will be angry and I will ruin you. This is God's wrath. And it is not capricious. It's not just I lose control. It is I am good. I am good. That means, that means I care. I care about the vulnerable. I care about those being abused. I care about those being oppressed. And my, my justice has action attached to it. I have an internal reaction to injustice and an external one. And that is called my wrath. And it flows from my goodness. God would not be good if he didn't care. 
But often I think we hear that. We think, okay, that is, it is good that he opposes those things. It is good. But then why, why, why does it take so long sometimes? And I think even for the, the original hearers, readers of this, what God was taking so long about the, why aren't you, why aren't you taking care of the Assyrians sooner? And so we read Nahum writing in verse three. He says, the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. This is actually, it's a phrase that pops up over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. Nine times God is described in the Hebrew Scriptures as being slow to anger. And it's always attached to his forgiveness, his forgiving nature, and his compassionate nature. See, God, see God's, God's first choice is never to exercise justice. God's first choice is always forgiveness. That's his first choice. Over and over in Scripture, God says that. I want to forgive you. I want to, I want to, the person who's committed, I want to forgive them. I want to restore them. I want to set them right. God's first choice is to forgive. And so, so even with the Ninevites, there, the Assyrian Empire and the capital of Nineveh, there is a whole book of the Bible dedicated to God's desire to forgive the Ninevites. You know this, you know the book of Jonah? Jonah and the big fish, Jonah gets swallowed by the big fish, spit up, that whole story, right? That whole book is about Jonah going to Nineveh and calling them to turn away from this violent, uh, this violent, oppressive way of being and to turn back to God. God's first choice is to forgive and to restore them, lead them back to him. But God says, I desire to forgive, but if someone does not turn around, if a whole culture does not turn around, if they continue in this anti-God, harming my image bearers, harming my children way of being, God says, there comes a time when I will say no more. Whether in history or eternity. But because I am good, I will not allow this to continue indefinitely. Nahum reminds them, the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord even now is hoping the Ninevites turn around, but it will not continue forever. He says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. What would that, re what would that remind the people of? He rebukes the sea and dries it up. Exodus, yeah, the kind of the the the, um, the event par excellence of God opposing the evil oppressor and delivering the cry of the oppressed. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Verse 7. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. But... But for those who will not turn around, for those who, who, who insist on continuing on this path of evil, on this path of oppression, but 
Those who do not turn and be forgiven, he says, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, and he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Again, there in verses 7 and 8, we see these ideas that, that, that for God, God's saying to us, my goodness and my, my justice in action, my wrath, they're not inseparable. They're together. They're one. That, my, that my, my justice in action, my wrath, flows out of my goodness. God says, because I am good. Because I'm good. I am just. And I care about when the vulnerable, when evil is done in this world. I care about it. And my first choice is to forgive and to restore and I am patient, but if that continues, there will come a time when I say no more. My justice will be put to action. A lot of you know that uh, that I, uh, Christy and I, we have um, well, the thing that the phrase that popped up. Many daughters was the phrase that popped up. My we have three daughters. And um, and a fourth is um, soon to be here in the next couple months. We collect them, and uh, there's, there's been time. I uh, I never would imagine that I would uh, enjoy uh, having daughters as much as I. It's like falling in love with each one of them. I just love. I just I love it, um, and it's just it's shaped my heart. Uh, and a lot of you also know uh, that when I when I graduated. Um, University, one of the things I got to do after I graduated is go over to Nepal uh, for six months with some friends. One of my good friends who went over there with me at the time, John Molino was his name, he ended up deciding to stay, felt called to stay there. And, uh, and years later, he ended up meeting a Nepali uh, woman who, who he married and stayed there with her, and, and they formed a, a, a nonprofit over there. And they've opened multiple orphanages there in Nepal now. And then one of the things they've gotten very involved in is... Um, Border monitoring, border monitoring. Um, girls from uh, Nepal are regularly trafficked down to the large cities in India, like um, Mumbai. And, uh, and, and so the, um, his organization, they've got all these border monitoring stations. They work with locals and local churches. Uh, and on average, they, they stop about 125 a month, uh, just a fraction of what's going on. The average, uh, the average age of the, the, the girl they stop is about 15. And... And as a as a as a as a father of daughters, I am appalled that this takes place in our world. And God would not be good if He didn't care, if He was indifferent, if He was not upset, if He was not angry. It's not capricious. It's not blowing off steam. It's not just losing control. It is because God is good that he sees that and he has, a, he has an anger towards it. And he says, that will not continue forever. There will come a time and place where God says, no more. That's good news whether in history or eternity, God says no more. God's heart is good. His good heart means it's just. He cares for the vulnerable and the weak. 
He cares when they're hurt, when his image bearers are harmed. He cares about evil, and he stands against it. When we talk about God's wrath, it's not just God venting, God losing his temper. We, what we talk about is his just, his internal reaction to that and his external reaction. God's wrath is his justice in action. I want to give us... Uh, I just want to give us a little space here at the end. Just, I want to ask you a couple questions just to reflect on what, what God might be saying to us this morning. Kind of where, uh, where do we take this from here? And so um, a, a resource and then a few questions uh, to reflect upon. Uh, one resource, I just, uh, if, you want to keep, if, if you want to continue to process through um, uh, the idea of God's wrath, a book that I'd recommend, Knowing God by Jerry Packer, he deals with, um, wrath and some some other maybe um, co- parts of God's character that some of us have developed. Uh, maybe maybe we have some misunderstandings about. We need to unlearn and relearn some things. Um, I know it's that way for me. But things like the wrath of God, the jealousy of God, His judgment. That um, Packer does a good job of unpacking those. Well, that's kind of Packer unpacks on that. Okay, um, but that's a good one, a classic. Uh, and then a couple questions for us to reflect on. Um, one question for us to think about is in, in what God's saying through this uh, scripture this morning, I guess I just want to ask you, where, where is the good news for you this week? What's the good news about this for you? Is, it, is, there, is there a situation where, where you, you feel like you've been on the wrong side of power. Power's been wrong, used wrongly against you, and you need to be reminded of God's heart for you, that he stands with you in it. Maybe there's a situation where you just feel this heart of revenge, of wanting to lash out, and you just feel God inviting you to trust that to him, to not use that, to not lash back, but to trust that he is working for justice. What's the good news for you in this this week? Is it just maybe it's simply good news to know? Maybe there are some situations of of uh, injustice in the world that you feel strongly about, and it's good news to know God's heart about those situations. What's the good news? Or maybe it's good news for someone else. Maybe there's someone that you know, somebody in in your family, in your small group, in your one of your housemates that you know that they have been hurt deeply. And it's good news and to even speak that to them. Hey, this morning, um, we were in Nahum. I know, crazy. But I just, I, I felt like God was saying something that I wanted to pass on to you about his heart for you and your situation. Maybe it's good news for someone else to share with them. So one question to, to reflect on in the coming days, what's the good news for you? The second question um, that I'd, I'd encourage us to reflect on is what might God be saying to us about our anger? I just found myself, I found myself praying about anger this week as I was thinking about this text. Um, anger is one of those emotions that, I, you know, I think we, we, we might, whether in ourselves or in our, our friendships or family, we have, different, uh, we have different ways of dealing with it. Sometimes we, um, we see or we ourselves are drawn towards using anger destructively, lashing out with words, hurting others. And so, you know, and we, we have this, oh, so we end up thinking anger is bad, you know. 
And then others of us, we, we, with our anger, I think some of us just, you know, shove it down and freeze it and kind of where our, our heads and our, our chest are separated. And this anger just becomes frozen inside of us. And as I prayed over, over this and just, uh, and just prayed about God's heart, I just had this, I sensed God inviting me and inviting us, just saying that he, he wants to shape us emotionally. He wants to form us emotionally. His heart is that we would be angry about the things he's angry about. And even for us as a community, you know, you hear about faith communities that, that where anger kind of gets, builds up a ball of steam. And you hear about faith communities where they're arguing over the, the color of the carpet or what the sign's going to look outside and these kind of these trivial things, you know. And even in my own life, it's like I get, you know, the internet doesn't work or, you know, the car's almost out of gas when I get it. And it's like you get angry about these trivial things. I just feel God inviting me not to cut anger off them, but that we would be a community that feels stirred up about the right thing. We would be shaped emotionally by him. And the things God gets angry about, the things that count in this world, that's what he's given us anger for. God. Uh, God's wrath, it flows from his goodness. His, it, this holy justice and God's love, they're not, they're not separate. It's not like... It's not like God has this just, you know, this side of holy justice, and then God's got this side of love, and they're kind of at odds with one another. That's not, that's not who God is. God's love is a holy and just love, and God's justice is a loving justice. And that's what we see when he, when he, when he shows us who he most truly is in Jesus the Messiah. That is what we see. We see a man who is fiercely standing for the weak. And yet with open arms ready to forgive any and all. And we see on the cross, what we see on the cross is, is this holy love and this loving holiness exemplified. When we look at the cross, we see how seriously God takes evil and injustice and abuse and oppression in this world. He stands against it. When we look at the cross, we see how far he will go to forgive any who would come to him. This, this is the God of reality. Not the cartoon God that we get handed. The loving and just God of reality. I pray that we would be drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, um, I confess, and I, my, uh, that I, my guess is I'm not the only one that, um, at times in my life, I've replaced um, caricatures. I've, I've replaced who you are really are in my mind with caricatures of you, and I've I've misunderstood. And I want, would you help me let go of those things? Would you help me see you for who you truly are? Would you lead me, would you lead us, God, to see this world, to feel about it more the way you and see, you see and the way you feel? God, we confess that even in our, um, in our anger, that at, uh, at times that we, 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 our anger gets disappointed at trivial things. And a lot of our anger is just reserved for ourselves and how we feel like we've been wronged. And, 
And a lot of times, God, we just want to take it out in destructive ways. And God, we, we, we put that into your hands. Would you shape us as a community that we would more and more reflect your son's image in this world? That we'd be stirred up about the things that stir you up. That we would trust the things to you that we're meant to trust. That we'd be led to act rightly. In the name of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, just as I mentioned earlier about you know my personal story of how 